Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kei He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Corporate jobs don't sit well with today's guest, Sarah Peck. Sarah has two degrees from the University of Pennsylvania, but being slouched at her desk under fluorescent lights wasn't her jam. In fact, she'd sneak out during her lunch break to go kayaking. Sarah's mantra has always been, you don't have to do things the way they're always done. And she hasn't. She started a blog as a side project and three years into it was making $30,000. This, combined with her minimalist lifestyle, gave her the confidence to leave that corporate job. And today, she describes her career as a collection of projects. She's a writer, a startup advisor, yoga teacher, and podcast host. We go wide and deep in this episode with a playbook that anyone can use to create, market, and sell digital products. We talk about education, her own and for her young son, and what credentialing is truly worth today. We cover the energy required to achieve diversity in both our reading list and professional networks. And finally, she talks about the Startup Pregnant podcast and what we can all learn about productivity, prioritization, and professional growth from badass new moms who also happen to be doing the startup thing. Please enjoy my conversation with Sarah Peck. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. Today's guest is Sarah Peck. How are you, Sarah? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you. Let's start start us off with where you're from. I was born in Germany. I grew up in Palo Alto, California. I lived in the Bay Area until I went to college. Then spent some time in Ohio, some time in Pennsylvania, back to San Francisco, dated a guy long distance and moved to New York City. Back to New York. <laughs> yeah. But most of your kind of childhood adolescence was Palo Alto, California. Palo Alto. Like that show Silicon Valley, it, it's like a parody of a lot of what I grew up with. And that was pre.com? Yeah, I was born in 1983. So grew up with, you know, Madonna. And then the 90s were the big kind of sweeping boom, lots of extreme wealth in the area and left for college in 2001. You forget that the 90s in Palo Alto were, were a boom because I, I associate like, a, I guess, late 90s to the tech boom. Yeah. Two big booms. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was thinking about how to get into to your your childhood and adolescence, but there was one little tidbit that came up that, that was fun. And so it involved your, your parents and your mom, I guess, who restricted the number of AP courses that you could take. Oh, yeah. So I actually, now that I'm a parent, I look back at a lot of the things my parents have done and I see them completely differently, especially like we never, I don't know how my parents did this, but we never were allowed to drink soda or have sugar growing up. Soda was not allowed. And they put those those kiosks in schools where they sell soda machines. So I don't know how she did it, but I didn't drink soda. And now today, being in my 30s, I'm really grateful that I don't have a sugar... Uh, soda habit. I do have a sugar habit, but I don't have a soda habit. And she also, I'll tell you a little story that's related to the AP story. When I was eight, she told me that I could join the swim team. 
but it was only three days a week. They had practice Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So one day after joining swim team, a couple months in, I I say, I want to go to the pool on Tuesday. So I go to the pool and I see everybody is practicing without me. And I was devastated. I was like, Mom, like, why did you tell me there was more swim practice? And she didn't want me to burn out because I have a tendency of really going full throttle. And then, I mean, I've, I've done this since I was born, but going full throttle and then getting exhausted within a month or two. And so I started going five days a week. And I was grateful that she started me off a little slower. She did the same thing with the AP courses. She's like, why don't you just take two, like pick two, pick the ones you want to be really good at, which was unusual in Palo Alto where people were taking seven or eight courses. Yeah. I think about that because because I have similar tendencies, like go hard and then collapse and then recover and go hard. And I would say most of our listeners have th- those kind of manic type personalities. But it's to have that kind of gatekeeper guardian at a, at a young age, it, do you aspire to kind of have those same boundaries for, for your child? That's an interesting question. I think like every human is so unique. So the kindest thing we can do for each other and for our children is see who they really are. And to have someone in your life that sees you and says, wow, you really, like you do this thing, I'm going to help you. You're young, right? My, my swim coach in college did the same thing. He told me that he knew I was so hard on myself that he didn't have to yell at me. And that was an unusual thing. He, you know, a lot of the motivation can come from a coach adding pressure or adding kind of an energy. And he, all he had to do was just look at me. And I was, I was head down, working harder, going faster, like self-flagellating in some ways. And it's really a wonderful thing to have people in your life, especially coaches and parents and mentors who aren't applying their curriculum to you, but they're looking at who you are and what might assist you. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I'd extrapolate that to a broader point about, do you accept the rules? Like, do you blindly accept the rules that society is imposing on you? And I I know, for example, when my wife's really good at pushing back on me on this, where when we were talking about having our second kid, I'd say, it's like, yeah, they got to be two years apart. She's like, why? Says Every, who? Everyone's, everyone, Mike, you know, look at our family, like my family, this and this. And she's like, who cares? And it, it's, it's such a, such an obvious thing. But we, you know, I see myself being so captive to the expectations of others. And to see that in a parent is like, especially the, in this day and age where it's like, go big or go home, right? Because you know what's awaiting, you know, the, the colleges and, and all that. It, it's like, it's very reassuring to know that people kind of can step out of that system. But also it requires a tremendous amount of like mental fortitude to step out of that system from the person who's, who's making that decision. Yeah, culture and social expectations and social norms are so much like a tide. Like if you're not paying attention, if you don't wake up to what is happening around you, you just kind of get pushed in that direction across everything. It's how I think about diversity and inclusion and systemic racism as well. Like it's not that people, some people are, but it's not that people are racist on purpose. It's that the systems and structures and tides pull us in a direction. And if we're not mitigating against that or aware of it or awake to it, then then it's going to sweep us and take us in that direction. Oh, man. 
my temptation would be to save this question, but let's just go there. I was just talking about this because one of one of the goals for this podcast is gender parity. And one of my goals I've written about this in the past for my network is parity in meetings amongst gender. And what I've found with men is this the the tide that you're talking about is the pushback. And I think it comes from a from a intellectually honest place or sound place, but like emotionally removed place. And so the, the pushback I get is, well, why pick on gender? Well, why use that parameter? What about, you know, conservatives, right? And I have very few conservative friends. And then what about conservative women? And what about conservative black women? And yes, that's all fine and good, but you got to get there. And so like an easy one to start with, easy, because it's actually very hard to get gender parity on this podcast, is to start with gender and then get down to the more nuanced and fragmented elements of diversity. Fragmented is probably not the right word, but you know what I mean. And then what I find, this is what really bothers me with the men that push back on this, is they're like, well, you know, I don't really agree with your thesis that like women is the good starting point for diversity. So I'm not going to do it. You know, it's like picking a fight on a technicality and then dismissing like baby with the bathwater because of the technicality. Oh, that's so interesting. I have so many thoughts on this. We could be here for hours. <laughs> and I'm really happy to because it's something I'm learning about. But I, the first thing that comes to mind is that you have to start somewhere. And in all decision making parameters. When you make a choice, you eliminate other options. So when we decide to take action, we're going to choose something. And if you start with gender, that's great. That's one place to start. It's an easier place to start because you have a rough expectation of what the outcome you're looking for is 50-50. Now that's assuming that gender is binary. But luckily, you can take that assumption and say, hey, I know that binary isn't necessarily like we have more than two genders, but this is how I'm going to measure. And it's an easy enough tool to measure. When I think about it on my own podcast, I actually use the demographics, the current statistics of America, what the current population is, how many African-Americans, how many Hispanics, how many LGBTQ and others. And I try to match and at least get there. Because otherwise, it's really hard to know when is enough enough and how much is is good enough. And the key problem, I think, that I'm hearing in what some of your friends are saying, the pushback, and this is a problem all over the place, is that it takes a lot of extra energy and time. And our systems are designed, like our internal psychological systems are designed to be efficient. Why do we form habits? It's for efficiency's sake. Like, we are always optimizing to reduce the amount of energy it takes to do something. So we learn habits, we learn defaults, we learn patterns, we wake up at the same time, all of these things just so that we can save our darn energy and do something useful in the day, usually find food and, and in our modern day, get make money, make enough money to live. So when you ask somebody to think about this, and then make a decision and then take action on it, what you're asking them to do is undo default habits that take a tremendous amount of work. And what they're really saying, the way that I hear it is, that's really hard. Yeah, dude, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and it's extra hard. I'll give an example, because I do this what I think is wonderful and other people might think is annoying thing where I email a lot of my friends who are conference organizers and I point out the diversity problems that they have podcast hosts and 
I, you know, good friends of mine, James Clare, I'll, I'll talk about him because I think he's really wonderful. But if he has 20 essays in a row that are by white men or referencing white men, I send him a little note. He works so hard to have wonderful representation on his blog. And sometime, and he said to me the last time, he was like, oh, I got lost in my book proposal and I totally forgot to pay attention. And look what happened. He got swept aside by the tide. It happens to all of us. He's not doing it on purpose. And that's why I really want to like shake these men because they're they're my friends and I care about them and I know that they're good-hearted. Their, their hearts are in the right place. They're progressive. They're they're like on paper they're for equality, you know, or the progressive values. But the tide, the tide just like it sweeps them, it sweeps them away and it's like, well, look at your reading list. And I, I, I see this myself. It's like white male, white male, white male, white male. And I, I try really damn hard on rad reads, but I, I, it's not easy because my interest, my echo chamber and, and all that. And so I just like want to say, just use this heuristic that's not super accurate, but it's so much better than not using the heuristic at all because the tide will just take you. Exactly. And you have to think, so the kind of nut of the problem here is that as entrepreneurs and as really busy people, we're constantly looking to figure out how to be efficient. And it's more efficient to take a recommendation from a friend than it is to do a ton of research about who to have on your show next or something like that. So what we have to do is optimize the process and pick one thing Because if every single person picked one thing to make a little bit better, that would be such a huge thing in terms of the movement. Each of us individually is not going to, you know, change everything all at once. But if we each do one thing and pick your thing, and maybe it's your reading list. So I record every single book that I read on my website. I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) And I do it because I I want to pay attention. And my goal is to have 50% of my books are by women, are written by women. And I get in such little fights with my husband because he's like, oh, I read another science fiction book. You should read it. And I said, is it by another white dude? And he's mm. like, yeah. <laughs> like, I can't read it next. Totally. I got to, you know, send me Madeline Langall or mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood. Yep. Yeah. So. I'm sure we'll circle back onto this topic. I wanted to talk about kind of, we were talking about going with the tide or, or the, the cultural, the expectations and I looked at the arc of your career and I was like, can I, can I write an arc? What, what's the thread here? And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to ask Sarah, how do you think about the, the arc or the chapters of your career? There's a couple of different ways I like to think about it. I think a career is a collection of projects. I think there's a lot of false dichotomies that people put out there. You either have to be an entrepreneur or work for a corporation. You have to do this or that. And for me, if I'm a great entrepreneur, hopefully I'm building something that might look like a corporation, right? And so I just always want to work with great people on great projects. But philosophically speaking, kind of underpinning all of this is one of my core life philosophies this perpetual question, does it have to look like this? You know, what's the matrix that we're living within? What are the assumptions that are unstated, but that we're all blindly following? And do you have to do it the way everyone else is doing? When did the first kernel of that emerge? I don't know if I articulated it as a philosophy until I started building this recent company, the company Startup Pregnant. And 
I did a core values exercise where I was writing out the mission, the purpose, the vision of the company. And then I wrote out the core values. What do we believe in? And to me, it was really important because as a podcast host of women entrepreneurs who are parents, there's a whole mythology about mommy wars out there. And I said, how do I have conversations that are inclusive and create parameters that say, this is how we show up. This is how we talk to each other. These are the rules of engagement. So I created core values. And one of the core values, two of them actually, that came out, I realized were also my life philosophies. And it was really interesting to see the overlaps of my business and my personal life and how much they're related. And one of them is at Startup Pregnant, because we're a company that focuses on women entrepreneurs and the collaboration and the kind of inspiration that startups can get from pregnancy and pregnancy can get from startups. Like what would a world that was inspired by feminine energy, what would that business world look like? And what would a motherhood world look like that was inspired by business principles? You know, take your extreme productivity and apply it to motherhood and take the like messiness of birth and apply it to business settings. In in that was this idea that you don't have to do things the way they've always been done. And that like once I once I wrote that down, I've been able to carry that around with me. And it's just this gentle reminder. It doesn't have to be a big, bold gesture either. It can just be, oh, people work nine to five. I'm going to work eight to two, right? Like you don't have to do it exactly the way it's always been done. And maybe there's a chance to tweak it to optimize your happiness or productivity or flourishing. Yeah. So, you know, you went to four-year program. You went to grad school, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did both of those. Did a stint of the at the corporate in the more corporate startup-y mm-hmm. world. When at some point you branched out into kind of solo entrepreneur, writing, consulting, creating digital strategies, I am probably butchering, but how did that transition, you know, the, the transition from a more, like you said, normal expectations of work, what work was. And I could only imagine that if you're doing the solopreneur gig for five, 10 years, it's the rules are really the rules that you you impose on yourself. So maybe like tell us about that transition and what that what that work consisted of, because I don't think many of our listeners have an appreciation for that that life they tend to be more you know corporate or or traditional like work at startups so i'd love for you to talk about kind of that transition so i took on almost a hundred thousand dollars of debt to go to the university of pennsylvania get a fancy design degree in architecture and then went to work for one of the largest global corporations in landscape architecture and urban planning studying effectively people and systems and design How do people move through space? How does open space work? Got to talk to a lot of just fascinating people like Jeannie Gang, who helped implement all the bike lanes in New York City, who did it with an experiment of just painting them, painting the streets. And then once they worked, started building them and just really enjoyed the philosophy and the ideas behind it. But the experience of design culture and office, the office environment drove me absolutely bonkers. And there were all of these subtle little things that I, at first, it's almost like corporate gaslighting. I've never used that phrase before, (laughs) but it's like (laughs) gaslighting, if people don't know, is when someone makes you believe it's your fault. I think that's the right definition. But so I always thought something was wrong with me Mm. for not liking the corporate world. 
the fluorescent lights were too bright. I didn't like the open office environment. I craved being able to move physically every day. I was really miserable, like stuck in an office. So I used to sneak out at lunch and go kayaking. (laughs) In New York? No, in San Francisco, Francisco, where you you can do that. And I just started like co-opting the conference room so that I could have a little more private space. All of these small, subtle things. But I also felt trapped by debt. I think debt is one of the hardest things that people can take on. And you had debt from two school, like undergrad and... College, I got a scholarship and my father paid for us to go through school. So I took on 10% of the total cost on my own, but that's not a lot. Yeah. And privilege in action, by the way, you know, having someone pay for your school. But I started like in the corporate world, just feeling so overwhelmed, so the kind of frustration, I'd say borderline rage, mm-hmm. <laughs> of needing an outlet, I started going to a lot of conferences and writing a blog. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I think, you know, on Facebook, when it first started, you had to write a little description of yourself. I stumbled across it like eight years later. And the description I had written was, I like explaining things to people. And I was like, whoa, I knew myself so much better than I thought I knew myself. And I wrote this blog. And two years in, people started asking me how I did it. Like, how did you write? What did you know? What are Situate tools us, are you using? Like time, like year? 2010. 2010, okay. I would say. So like post Facebook world, but not like heavy social days yet. Exactly, exactly. What was the topic? Oh, the blog back then was called It Starts With. It was all about starting things. And then I put up writing courses, four-week writing courses to kind of teach people what I had learned. And at the end of two years doing that, I remember at the end of the second year, so this is five years in to be working corporate. I had a blog for two years. That year, I made $30,000 on the side. I said, well, this is interesting. If I quit my job... Do I trust that with the extra time, I could, at minimum, double that? Because I can survive off of that, you know? It's hard to pay rent in San Francisco and live off of that. It's hard to live in New York City and live off of that. But I could do it. I was a single person. I didn't have children. And I had a lot of strategies for reducing my spend. I I did a year of not buying any clothing whatsoever. I have a sewing machine, so I know how to sew my own clothes. I I was reading all these minimalism blogs. I was buying Trader Joe's salads and mixing them with extra spinach so that my Lunches were only like a dollar fifty. Yeah. You know. Oh wow! <laughs> like straight up life hacking, <laughs> totally. uh, Miss Madame Moustache. Like wow. And and so I took the leap. I had a whole plan on my wall for for when to go and what it would look like. And then in August 2013, I did. Was any of your revenue like ad based, or was it all through all through products? Yeah, products. All, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then when I had the full time to dedicate to it, I started taking on clients. So I opened a media consultancy where I helped people with, you know, communications and marketing, writing and social media. People were asking for social media strategy. And I got a couple of clients and had effectively an agency. 
I know an agency would be fancier. I think that would involve having like lots of employees. I, more, I would call myself more of a freelancer entrepreneur at that point. And you did that for? I did that for two years. And there's a love story wrapped up in there. One of the big, strong impetuses for leaving San Francisco and moving to New York as part of that big break was I was dating my now husband long distance. Okay. And then we moved. He was in New York. He was in New York. I, you know, I gave him some, some grief about it. I said, you should move to San Francisco. And he did. For a month, and then I said, oh, actually, I want to quit my job and leave San Francisco anyway, so why don't we move to New York? Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I did my freelancing for about two years, sold products through my website, and people approached me about building courses for a startup here in New York City, so I helped that. I, I ended up joining a startup yeah. for another two years. Wow. You know, the course thing is... It feels like I'm so new to the digital landscape. I feel like I've been in it forever, but it's been three years. And when I hear, you know, your story, 2010, you know, eight years or probably more, tell us a little bit, mostly because I'm curious about it too. Like, how does the course model work? And and really, the question that I have is that just because you are smart about a topic, does that mean that you can turn that into a good course? And I ask that because our listeners have, some of them have a lot of followers, some of them are really um, talented in like some niche vertical. What are the steps to take like expertise into like a digital to product? That's such a great question. And I have a lot of thoughts about this. I think First of all, I always build the sales page before I build the course. So if I have an idea for something, I'll, you know, my moleskin is two inches away from me right now. I'll sketch out an idea of a topic and see if I have enough expertise in my mind. I'm like, oh, I want to teach a writing course. I would teach them about like storytelling and visualization and the kinesthetics of it. And, you know, I jot down a whole bunch of ideas and say, oh, there's plenty of material here. I know I could do it. And then you write the sales page because it shouldn't take you more than two or three days you write out, what am I going to give you? What are the promises I'm making? And then sell the dang thing. And if you can't sell it, don't build it. <laughs> That's the only thing you need to do. And I think I sold my first one to a list of 100 people. And I, that's so important to me because so many people think you have to have 10,000 people on your email people list. 100 people total on, on my the email list, list or that bought it? On the list. Oh, on the list. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think I sold 23 spaces and gave away seven more. Got it. For a class that's a couple hundred bucks. Right. Or, my conversion rate was yeah. great. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, 100 people. If you had 100 people in a coffee shop listening to you speak, that would be such a privilege. So we always have these like macho kind of how big is your list conversations. And honestly, you could probably do it with your friends and family sooner than you think and say, hey, I'm thinking of teaching a course on... You know, I know you, you teach one on omni, OmniFocus or, I'm, you know, on how I turned my moleskin into a brilliant planner. Yeah. And, and if people say yes, you can send that out as an email in MailChimp. That's what I use still. There's survey, survey tools, or just do a Google form questionnaire. Yeah. Wow. Knowing my audience, who, again, is a little bit more of the linear trajectory, I think that the one question that would arise is, you didn't major, maybe you did major in English. Like, right. What? What gives you, and the I don't credentials, say that, the credential the to, and I, I have my own view because I have been in the digital world for so a while. It's a great question. But what gives you the credentials right. or the confidence? Well, how, why should someone learn from you? Yeah. That's what everyone's asking. And we have a shortcut, 
which is usually degrees or certifications, because what we're looking for is a reason to believe you. The good news is that you can give people reasons, but you have to demonstrate it. And for what I did, I had I had started teaching on the side at General Assembly, which was a startup at the time, and I taught storytelling classes. So I had some experience teaching, and I was able to put that on the sales page. And I also was doing a lot of writing for my company. But I took it upon myself to, in the course of a year, because I was applying for this, this marketing position within the architecture company, to read 85 books on storytelling and marketing. And I kept track of them on my website. And then I listed them for people. And I listed them based on how, how good I thought they were. And, you know, Nancy Duarte's storytelling and a Resonate book and all of these different books I started listing. And I was able to consolidate a lot of the thinking and the theories. So... No, I didn't go to school for it, but I did the work. Yeah. And here's how I did it. And when I and I would start my general assembly courses like that, I say, "Hey, I have a background in psychology and architecture. I've read 85 books on storytelling, and I now do storytelling for a design company. And what is design but teaching people how to imagine a new world? And what is storytelling but teaching people how to imagine a new world?" And that was all the buy-in I really needed. People said, "Oh, I believe you." And you write a blog. I can see your writing in action. So I guess that's the answer to the do you have credentials? Yeah, I guess maybe. So that's the external question. What were some of the more negative thoughts you had around kind of your early days of entrepreneurship, self-doubt or questions for yourself? To be honest, I don't think they go away. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you're <laughs> if you're pushing your learning curve out, yeah. It's always there. At least it is for me. Maybe I need more therapy and I've been in therapy for years, but I don't know, the fear, the nerves, the insecurity, the hard days, the like questioning of yourself, that's I think that's part of the human condition and what matters more is cultivating your capacity for bravery and courage and making a choice in the face of uncertainty than cultivating a mindset that's really confident or thinks that we know it all. Like the, the latter doesn't seem very helpful to me. There's, there's sometimes when bluffing your way th- through things works or posturing can help. I mean, look, I get paid more if I put makeup on and wear high heels. So what am I going to do? Like, I, I know how to play the game. But honestly, like, I don't know. I'm building a new company now and I still am besieged by <laughs> I wake up yesterday, right? Yeah. I, yesterday or was it Monday night? I, I I cried. I cried and I cried to my husband because I said I'm not getting enough sponsorships. I'm not doing this right. I am totally failing at this. Like my job in this business is to make money. I can't do it. And he was like, "Just tell me all about it. You know, tell me what's going on." And I listed out all the things I tried and all the things that weren't working and it just it's hard. And then the next day I woke up and two people reached out to me blind, never met them before to sponsor the podcast, which just goes to show you that like the stories, <laughs> sometimes you just got to cry. Yep, like, yep. like sometimes you just don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You mentioned therapy. And in one of your podcast interviews, you said the ability to, I think it was in reference to college the therapists, which we've had two on the show or one on the show, the ability to to have someone go into your mind and like talk it through you, you know, I'm paraphrasing with you is one of the greatest privileges. Say more about that. You know, it always baffles me that there's so much stigma associated with mental health because especially I imagine for your audience, we're in the business of optimizing our performance and 
and getting better and growing and learning, right? Like that thrills us. And you'll see so many posts on productivity hacks and life hacks and all of this. And I mean, if you don't know your own mind, what are you doing, right? Like studying what we do and why we do it and where we come from, it's just such a privilege and something I'm so grateful for and I will do for as long as I can have health care that helps cover it but and even pay for it out of my own pocket because it keeps me steady. It lets me understand myself and my motivations. So many of us are walking around with we get these patterns imprinted on us about what we think the world is doing to us or for us or about us and who we are. And they're printed on us early like age four to age seven, a lot of our operating paradigms we have from pre-age seven. And and it can be something totally random, like you went to a swim meet and you're trying to do something and you peed on accident and now you're terrified of doing anything that's brave. And like going in and starting to unpack that and unwind that in a safe place. I mean, think about the potential of you after that. I can represent both sides of the coin, as my podcast audience knows. On one end, I was in denial. I was. I don't. I don't need that. I can man up. I can toughen up. But it, it's funny because I, I listen to a lot of these, you know, sensitive male podcasts, and and a lot of it is like you, I think you said. There's a collective belief that like middle school is just the the worst phase of life for like maybe like (laughs) except for the alphas of the males. And I don't know what the equivalent of the alpha females. It's probably the worst traumatizing experience. But you you talked about meeting your husband. One of the one of the things that you said was that I guess when you were dating, you had narrowed down. You're such a systems thinker and you had narrowed down the the criteria, I guess. of what would make for a suitable mate. <laughs> I did. I want to say one more thing okay. about our last subject, yes. actually, before we switch over, which is because you reminded me of it and what you said. I think this westernized, individualized world we live on, live in, there are ways in which it is extremely hard on women. Women have now a little bit more ability to talk about it right? We're having conversations around it. There's a lot of unspoken trauma and pain in all of our men, right? Like we teach little boys and I have a little boy and it breaks my heart. We teach them not to feel. And that to me is like a huge shame because of course you have feelings and learning how to deal with your emotions and understand them and work with them and communicate to other people. We, I think we've failed our men, our boys and our men. And I think we're seeing the repercussions of it in our society right now. And having people to talk to, there are grown men that I know that don't get touched, that don't have close friendships, that don't talk enough. And the burden of that psychologically on your humanness is just, it's untenable. It's cruel. It's, it's horrible. And if you have to pay for mental health to just start getting out of the hole, it's also a horrible place to be. Like to get out of that, you don't even see what it's like to, to get out of that. And so honestly, generously from my heart, if somebody listening feels like that, send me a direct email. My email is public and I will tell you all the places I love going. And it's on my website. I write about therapy and like, and do it. It's so true. And, and that's such a, a heartfelt and genuine invitation 
that you put out there, I, I, I would. There's two th- two thoughts came through my mind as you were saying that. The first was I'm a big fan of talk about you know sensitive guys on podcasts. Jerry Colonna's podcast, which he's an entrepreneur's coach, but basically I was a guest. Basically, it's like a man male guest goes on. It's like 90% male guests. They talk about how they're crushing it and something, and then he's like, "Well, why do you really care about crushing it?" And it turns out to something that happened in middle school. And then everyone starts crying. And it was funny because I would send this to a few of my female entrepreneur friends. And I'm like, you got to listen to this. This is so earth shattering. Like it will blow your mind. And the response was like, dude, we've been dealing with this shit since we were like 12 years old from society, from like, it's like to, to just be awoken to it, you know, as a 35 year old male, it's like join, like join the club. So there's this like, you know, tongue in cheek empathy to it. And then this other thought that arose just as you were talking, I thought you were going in this direction where with kind of this gender conversation is I think and write a lot about mortality. And I found, again, this is empirical that it's like really men that are just so obsessed with like living forever and I hear it from some female friends and guests, but it's really the men that are like, it's just so soul crushing that, that they know that they're going to die one day. And I was one of those men that really suffered from that feeling. But the gendered lens that was interesting, A, that there, the, the difference between the men's perception and the female's perception of mortality. When you ask men if they're scared of death, why they're scared of death, they're like, well, I'm, I, I hope people will remember me. And when you ask women, again, very kind of anecdotal, usually the first question is like, who will take care of my kids? And it's so striking that that difference. And it reminded me of this, this little f- fact that I discovered recently. Again, you're going to say like, of course, but most caretakers of old men are women. So it's like, not only do the men want to live forever, but the people who will be caretaking taking care of them probably are women. And so it's just like this total kind of like mind fuck just thinking about that, that all. It It is for more, I mean, A, I love what you're saying. And, and for more on that, I think Anne-Marie Slaughter is a really interesting resource if people haven't heard of her book. It's mm. called Unfinished Business. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Well, her One of her main theses, pardon me if I'm butchering it, but is in our capitalist society, we have codified, we have found a way to understand competition and business and monetary endeavors. We know what that looks like and we know how to quantify it and understand it. We do not have the same set of metric understanding of caretaking. We don't quantify it. We don't account for it. And we definitely don't put it into our capitalist system. The amount of energy and time and money, which is time and energy is money, it takes to raise children and to take care of older people and sick people. And for a long time, women have done that and are doing that, and they do that for free. We set up a system in which that was women's role. For better or for worse, we have a lot of unpaid labor around things that do we value them in our society? I don't know. What value system do you use? If we're not putting them into the system that we use to value everything, A, are we actually like accurately capturing what is valuable and B, what harm does it do to us? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been thinking a lot about emotional labor. And again, it was one of these topics where it's like as a straight male, 
you know, you don't really have a an incentive to write about it because, you know, one side is like, why are you doing this? And you probably can't go far enough to the other side to to re- to still not be part of the problem. But I guess the thing about emotion, and I'd love to hear hear your take on it, especially with some of the interviews that you've done, was that, again, there was this, the tide where it's like, well, what is emotional labor? And some people say it's like mentoring at work and others will say it's, you know, who organizes the secret Santa, like the like houseworky type things. And it's who does recruiting events and it's who's there, who's expected to smile and be, you know, affable when, when you walk in. And this, this like wide spectrum of, of labor. And what I found with many men is like, you know, mentoring is emotional labor. It's like I mentor or like mentoring is part of like the job responsibility. And so again, the the whole category gets dismissed because it's like too much work for me to get into the nuances of this. But I I wrote a post where I just described emotional labor. I think I use an acronym. It's shit someone does that goes unrecognized. And then people are like, oh, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen that. And and you could see it in many different examples. So so I I guess the the question for you is on the topic of emotional labor, either in the household or in the corporate world, what do you see as the challenge or the green shoots in in the right direction? And what are your thoughts about it more generally? It's such a hard one because some of these terms that we use are so loaded that we really do have to redefine them before we can have an honest conversation. Like emotional labor almost doesn't make sense to me anymore as a term. Like I know what it signifies. I know what people mean. And then I also know that it's maybe not helping us have a conversation all the time. Especially, I think there's I think there's sometimes a marketing problem when we when we term things because the desired intended audience we want to reach is not receptive for the term. And I'll use the term like toxic masculinity as a phrase. I know what it means. It's really important that we talk about it. And who would ever respond well to it? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm a toxic male. Like, that's not going to go over very like well. The, yeah, like, I'm the Gowanus Canal <laughs> yeah. of men. You know? No, like, you're not. It's not, it's not going to help you have a conversation. So a lot of times, like in my work in communications and translating, it's what exactly what you did. It's taking a term and putting it into regular terms. And I actually love the one you said. To me, it's, do people know that I did this? And do they value this work? When you say to somebody, oh, we could hire that out for $5 an hour, just notice that you are saying that somebody's time is not worth very much money or that it's not important to do it. And it's really hard. In our startup, we had two or three females max. And we were you know, a team of between eight and 15, you know, depending on how, how young we were. And it was automatic. The tide was there. There'd be three women cleaning up the kitchen. And luckily, I'm a vocal enough person that I would go, and we had one big office where I'd say, ahem, can't have one gender in the kitchen. Somebody switch places, right? And I could make a joke about it, but it's that default that it's so hard because it seems so innocuous. It seems so inconsequential, each little tiny thing. And that makes the conversation so hard because then you you tell somebody like, well, I don't want to clean up the kitchen right now. And the response is, well, don't. And they don't see it as part of the larger context. And they don't know. You know, a, a better example is going to be 
microaggressions. Okay. Do you know what those are? I do, but I'd love to hear you. I, I think it's like it. emotional labor where it, it I think it, it means so many things in my head that I don't really know what it means anymore. Yeah. So I learned about this when I was talking to, I interviewed a woman who um, identifies as black, African-American, and her husband is white. And so they have mixed race children. And all three of her children have different hair. Some of them have straighter hair than others. And in this culture, Western American culture, we really prioritize straight, beautiful blonde hair. And so every day, at least five or 10 people will come up to her and tell her, one daughter, her hair is so beautiful. Right? It doesn't seem like a mean phrase. No one's trying to be mean when they say it. Or they'll tell their children, like, you look so exotic. And what they're saying to especially when they isolate one daughter and not the other two like wow your hair is so beautiful they're saying you look better than other people because you look white that's the translation and they don't know that they're saying we don't know that we do this it's like when we say you're in a room and you ask somebody like where are you from and the person you're asking is a different color than you and it's an accident you don't know you're trying to start a conversation your intention is good but the undertone of what you're saying, this is why it's called microaggression, the undertone of what you're saying is you're different, you're not from here, you should be whiter, yeah. that's prettier. And when you, when you translate those and to a three-year-old yeah. who's constantly being compared to her sisters that she's the more beautiful one, over time, that's why it's called an aggression, that adds up. You hear that five times a day for 500 days, like that affects you. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, not to to get all productivity junkied on this, but there, <laughs> there is the, the 10,000 hours thing where we're of similar mindsets of like do something consistently and compound it over time and the benefit will be exponential to you. But if you compound that negative thing, that little tiny thing in the kitchen, cleaning the kitchen, that same person every time for a career, a decade of a career, that spread's going to be really fucking wide with the person who didn't who who didn't have to do it. Right. Every dish you put away, like we could probably calculate this. You and I could take a day and get super geeky about it and realize that every day that you put away an extra dish, how much money you're losing and how that compounds over time. And it's really it's not a it's not a 5-minute question. It might be a 4 million dollar career question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you get into and these are like you get into like the bigger biases of like who gets invited into the room and like or is the corporate event at a strip club you know like it's like that's is it like after a level 5 p.m yeah yeah like who's taking care of the children are all of the parents especially the mothers who are the primary caretakers now eliminated from the equation and is it are they sol they should have just gotten a babysitter are you paying them more because they have to pay for caretaking? Mm-hmm. So that's a, <laughs> a, a, that's a, an excellent segue into your latest venture. I mean, tell us what it is, how it came about, and, and I have a million questions. <laughs> sure. And we never talked about my husband, but that's okay. We'll save that. No, that'll be our little Easter egg. I, okay. I have not for the flag has been planted. Right. It's really important as a podcast host and guest to like remember what Easter eggs you plant because otherwise I know as a listener, I'm just like, why didn't you close the loop? <laughs> but it's hard when you're having a conversation. Okay, so I run a media company called Startup Pregnant and it was, it is a happy accident in some ways. I thought I was writing a book. I spent a year and a half writing a book proposal, mostly because I got pregnant while I was working at a startup, a Y Combinator venture-backed startup. We were building courses and growing really fast. And I knew I was going to get pregnant. It was a 
It was planned. I even talked to the CEO about it before I joined the team. We made a plan. We built the maternity leave together. But I was shocked by how much I experienced that I wasn't prepared for and that I, I didn't think anyone was talking about. And every time I turned around to like, have a conversation, whether it was about the crazy code inside my body that was going down this, it's like, you shall build a human now <laughs> path, which was wild, to these like unexpected opportunities to up-level as a person, like to kind of break down old systems and then rebuild. Because there's nothing like having extremely limited time and shifting energy to really have, like first there's an undoing where you, you just, everything breaks, but then you get better if you're smart about leveling up. And Was this as the founders or as the employees or just the, personally, the culture? The per- per- so personally, so for example, I had to get really good at saying no. Right. Like my time was limited. I had my first pregnancy. I had extreme morning sickness. I would call it all day sickness. And if I wasn't in bed lying down by 730 p.m., I was vomiting intensely. And I used to just push a little harder and like get things done. So my word became more important. I had to get better with my integrity. But nowhere was anybody talking about pregnancy as this like MBA leadership accelerator or this chance to like grow as a person. I mean, another great example is there's this like fear of maternity leave and parental leave. It's like, oh my God, the employee's going to leave. Like, we're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, if you're at a startup, of course people are leaving, right? Yeah. That's a guarantee. So it shouldn't really be that much of a challenge. Like, you have an employee that tells you they know when they're going to leave and they know they're coming back. To me, that's like better than most employees. But When you leave a company for three months, it forces you to think in terms of systems because you have to think about who's going to cover my work when I'm gone. Is the work I'm doing important? Have I systematized it? Is it documented? Is it outside of my brain? And all of these things, like... I would beg companies to do this, right? Like, Most maternity companies, leave or not, like but yes, pregnant people or not, yeah, just com- like, like, do this. Just do this, right? And so then I said, wow, this forced three-week or three-week, God, no, sorry, three-month leave is actually a great system test for any company. And if you're a year or two years into your company, you should be doing this regardless of whether or not you have people who are taking leave. And then in addition... If you don't have women on your team or you don't have a parental leave in policy, you're discriminating against women and then you're losing money because when you have women on your boards and on your team, you make 30% more profits. That's been demonstrated. So anyways, all of these things, I'm really, I'm throwing the kitchen sink at you, but I just was like, this is cultural conversation is outdated. You know, if another person tells me that I'm going to turn into a mom and never want to work again, I might actually start throwing punches. (laughs) So I started, I I pitched a big agency here in New York to write a book about it, my experience and what I learned and spent a long time on the book proposal and it, it didn't gel quite. And I think the reason is because, I mean, honestly, my story's not that interesting because I'm a white, privileged, married, straight person who worked at a startup that kind of floundered. So it's not like I have this like, (laughs) you know, there's like, there's too much privilege with it. And it wasn't it wasn't a compelling enough hook. So they recommended that I go interview more women to make it a book about, you know, a, a more culturally relevant and resonant book. So I started interviewing people and I got 30 interviews in and I realized that I needed to not do these alone. I should make them public because this is what I would like just crave. 
So I turned it into a podcast and I said, well, I'm a new mom. I can't do another unpaid (laughs) project. So I asked for sponsors and I got sponsors. And it was that moment where you're the last one to know what's going on, where I realized this looks like a business and this smells like a business. And I think I just started a business. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's so fascinating because it's viewing pregnancy as kind of like use a starting like a race it's like you you start from a disadvantaged place because you leave you you know there's your schedule becomes more rigid and all that versus like no it's actually from a place of strength and and like my amazing wife is like mom of two kids i'm like what she does is heroic you know compared to some of the stuff that i do more compared to most of the stuff that i do are there some, you know, use the example of the wikis and, and like processing the knowledge, but, you know, of all the interviews you've done, what are some of the most shocking insights that, that you've heard from your guests? I think Sarah Lacey's interview. Yeah, she was incredible. She is the founder of Pando Daily, and now she's starting a company called Chairman Mom. She shared some stats with me that were mind-blowing and both positive and negative. Like one of them is, and this is kind of a bomb for all parents out there who are listening. You do take a productivity hit when you become a new mom. It's about a 15% productivity hit. And the good news is that's not as much as I was expecting. You you may feel internally like you're a shipwreck and you're just flying by the seat of your pants. But externally, you're still about 85% productive. After two years, however, your productivity gains are, I don't know the actual number, I'm going to guess it's like 30% more for the rest of your life, compounded over the 30 or 40 years that you have left of your career. So if a company and its employees can see this for the long game, it is worth more than the $15,000 for maternity leave, whatever it is, it is worth so much more than that in longevity and loyalty and insights and innovation and productivity that you get back. You just have to be willing to invest for more than two yeah. years. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. What was one of the most like shocking, like on the negative side of the ledger? Yeah. So the, the negative side was that 40% of households in America, according to a Pew study, believe that women moms shouldn't work 40 percent of america households of of american households households. believe that women shouldn't work and that blew my mind it kind of gutted me i'm getting a little sick right now thinking of it but it explains how divided this country is and there's a really strong set of people that believe that women it's not women's place to work and those negativity biases are really strong and it explains a lot of things like why our government doesn't provide paid leave? Because if you believe that women shouldn't work, why would you support them in going back to work? And I mean, it makes me cry. Like it just, it's the, I think it's such a disservice to our economy because when you take 50% of the brains out of a country and say you shouldn't be involved, you you just lose. You're not going to be a global competitor. And, and for our GDP and for our well-being and for our innovation, I, I just oh, I believe so strongly that women and men should have a choice in what work looks like, but we shouldn't discriminate based on gender, who should work and who shouldn't. Yeah. And that calcifies the institutional and governmental policies against that. I mean, it's hard It's hard to unwind that stuff once it's, once it's there. And I'm shocked that even today that that number, I'm shocked, but then I look at the world and 
okay, <laughs> the world makes a lot more sense now. It does. You can start to understand it and then say, oh, goodness, like, <laughs> got a lot of work to do. Yeah. yeah. So I have two more questions. You have a two-year-old son, Leo. We'll put pictures in the He's show the notes. <laughs> He's really cute. We talked about contrarian thinking. We talked about credentialing. What do you think Leo does when he's 18 when it comes to education? I don't know if he needs to go to college. I want to leave that up to him. We talk a lot about, we. I mean, he goes to a traditional-ish daycare right now. I'm thrilled with it because he's thriving so much. I get to see all the activities that they do, and I, I don't know if I would do a better job. And we also talk as a family about skipping middle school, the bane of all of our existence. Why go? Like, why bother? You forget everything you learn in middle school anyways. Like, you're just going to repeat it in high school. So we want to take our kids to a different country and live there for two or three years so that they can learn a foreign language. Maybe we can volunteer or work or do something completely different than what our work looks like today so that they get a broader experience of what the world looks like. And I mean, if you learn a language in middle school, I think you're doing great. Yeah. I, you know, you can catch up on algebra or we can teach you that. But college, I, I my current thinking, right, and I may look back and laugh because I don't even know if Leo's going to need to learn how to drive. Yeah. We might have driverless cars everywhere yeah. by the time he comes of age. I would like him to learn how to drive just as a pastime you know here's how to drive a manual but when it comes to college if that's still an institution I would recommend a gap year just so he can learn more about the ins and outs of making money and what it truly costs to live and how to budget and what work looks like and gain more respect for that before deciding on a career path yeah. I mean I don't have a career path so like I don't know if he has to decide on one but trying one yeah yeah. No, and I, and I wonder that. I, I One of our guests, a Harvard professor, he was making the argument that, that education has lagged a lot of the innovation, but the, the statistics are still very clear that like if you have a college degree, your earnings potential is much higher than if you don't. Totally. But again, it's there's a lot of averages, and he teaches at Harvard versus you know other schools. But he did make one interesting point, which I think you and I will both appreciate, is that it was less about college, but more about the liberal arts education, which I would argue that, you know, when you go out and read 85 books on storytelling, you gave yourself your own damn liberal arts education. <laughs> and to not, I, you know, I guess I gut check myself to not confuse, like, being able to start a quick a digital business that can start making cash flow to an appreciation for deep and wide learning and inquiry, right? They're not necessarily the same. College might package those two things together or separately or fail to do it. But it just made me think that that this college or no college question is is less about college and more about an approach, like a phil philosophy of learning and where do you have the best chance of mm. of putting that philosophy to the task. So two thoughts come to mind. And the first is that if we're waiting until college to instill that kind of attitude or philosophy in somebody, I, you know, we're playing catch up. It's a Band-Aid. And I think, I think I'm a little more concerned about the state of primary education right now and how much of it is so rote and memorization and, oh, I may be oversimplifying, but there's still a lot of kind of factory style learning and taking the creativity out of things. So... 
that would be my primary focus first. And the second thing is what I think colleges get right is they, it's like the model for what a city wants to be. Good community, living really close in close proximity with each other, even uncomfortably so, roommates, right? Bunk beds. Which, bunk beds, <laughs> right? Which you're like, oh, I don't want you to like make out with that person while I'm in the room. But like you, it forces you to have conversations and stay connected and see people on a regular basis. The model of learning during specific times of day, even, you know, a lot of school is from eight to three because physical sports and athletics are from three to six. I mean, I just think so much of it is just right, right? And it's close and it's beautiful and there's resources dedicated to learning and experimentation. And I think if we can take that and apply it to how we live, Rather than paying $50,000 a year for four years to have that experience as a luxury and then waking up to be an adult when you're 23 and realizing, like, why do we call those the best years of our lives? That's a terrible thing to say. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> like, it should totally. be the start of our lives. I know. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Wow. So the three attributes that your future mate had to satisfy well, this question the easter egg we're back everyone we're back. not to worry so or maybe like frame the, the yeah to give a little context i think on the first episode i did with srini on the unmistakable creative i talked about i was engaged i think at 26 and had a pretty rough breakup so i threw myself headlong into head first i don't know if headlong's a word head first into a whirlwind of dating match.com and they don't, not all the apps like there was no bumble but I threw myself into a lot of dating and oh and on 30 or 40 dates in a year with new people and it wasn't working so I, I don't know if I would have called it this then but I had to systematize a little bit how am I going to do this better and I wrote in one of my mole scans I still have it what is it that I'm looking for And a friend of mine, Susanna Scully, who's an amazing human being, she had me write a list. She's like, okay, write your top 10. You know, what are the things you'd really like? And I wrote my top 10. And then she said, okay, pick three, right? Do you have all 10 of those things? And, you know, if you look look at yourself in the mirror pretty closely, no, we have great aspects of ourselves. And then we're okay at Mm -hmm. other things. Like what was like number 10? Like great rock climber. (laughs) No, it's, I mean, if you start to list it, you're like, I want them to be good looking and I want them to have a sense of humor and I want them to be intelligent and like all of these, right? Like if you create your dream list, sure. But it's like a reality dream list in which you're forced to prioritize. Okay, if I could only pick three things, what would they be? And I picked empathy or kindness. The biggest turnoff for me is when someone isn't able to see somebody else's perspective or they're mean to other people intellect. I crave learning. It's like a huge priority in my life. And if I come home and I can't have a conversation with you about a new book every week, it's not going to go very far. But for me, other people would find that nauseating and intense. And right, that's not right for everyone, but that's right for me. And the third thing was activity. I have been known to be an extreme athlete. And at first, I thought I needed to find a triathlete and like or an ultra marathon runner or somebody who was as intense as me and then I realized that I didn't necessarily know if that made a great pairing but if they couldn't go on a hike with me we'd be at a loss right like Sunday hike and and those were my top three it was 
And I remember the word was athleticism, and then I turned it into activity, and I started to list out those things. I thought if I could find a really kind, really smart person who liked the outdoors, I would be in really good luck. And I met him the next week. <laughs> isn't that the that's the secret, right? Or you like visualize <laughs> it? That's the that's the science behind manifestation. When you write down what you want with a lot of clarity and specificity, you're able to see it. It's not that it's it's not that you conjure it out of thin air. That's what it feels like. But if I tell you it's like the gorilla study, there's a, a video, a basketball player of videos. But if I tell you, like, go out in the street and look for everything red, you apply a filter to your brain, you're going to start seeing red lights and stop signs and red cars. You're priming yourself to see what it is that you want. And it works really well. It's kind of phenomenal. I wrote an article for 99U about how to do this. Oh, wow. Do you you still prime your, like, visualize or prime? Yeah. Right now, the thing that I'm working on in the moment, (laughs) live as we speak, is unpacking my beliefs around money my childhood beliefs around money and and noticing a lot of habit change and behavior change starts with noticing and recognizing first awareness um, and then trying to change perceiving the threshold of change failing and then finally succeeding I make a joke that it takes me three months to change my habits the first is to figure out what I actually do the second is to try to change and fail and the third it actually sticks because you get 21 days three times (laughs) you know because you're learning but being able to make that change is so important. Beautiful. Well, this this has been, it's been like a ping pong of, of podcasting with like no arc and <laughs> jumping around. But I think we nailed, I think we nailed it back with a nice little finish on, on the Easter egg. <laughs> Where can our listeners go find out about you and your work? And we'll put it all in the show notes too. My personal website where I still blog once a week is sarahkpeck.com. And then that's my username everywhere twitter and instagram and then startup pregnant is startuppregnant.com and that's the username everywhere at startup pregnant cool and that's a weekly podcast weekly podcast there's a long form interview on mondays and then we're experimenting with a 15 minute short episode on wednesdays and i'll see if it sticks amazing thank you so much sarah this has been awesome thanks these are such great questions Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.